Well, thank you all so much for coming. Uh, one of my favorite things in the world is to have the chance to talk at length about myself, especially when I'm talking to people who actually sort of have to listen, however briefly. So uh, I will try and keep this, uh, you know, along the lines of something that you might actually be interested to hear. I, I do apologize that th this was advertised as being about a 45-minute presentation. Um, I, I can't quite go that long because I do need to get backstage at a certain point and kind of just, you know, check on things. Uh, that's not because I actually have anything to do back there. Actually, I don't. Uh, the, um, the people who are going to be doing the thing, they are already back there, and let me tell you, they are absolutely phenomenal. I just need to go back there because if I don't, my head will explode, and, and nobody wants that. So, so anyway, uh, I'd like to just start by telling you a little bit about how this thing came to be, uh, and then I'll talk a little bit about what it is and how I did it, and then I'll open it up for, for any questions that you all might have. Uh, in the summer of 2009, uh, a friend of mine mentioned that, uh, hey, there's this, this sort of avant-garde opera company up in Portland that wants to commission an opera that will synchronize to a Mario Bava film. Well, uh, I had never in my life had any idea about composing an opera. Uh, I mean, I love opera. As a matter of fact, the, the very first piece of classical music that I can ever remember hearing when I was probably about six uh, was the coronation scene from Boris Godunov. And I actually do remember that. I remember hearing that music as a small child and, and just thinking, what is that? I, I totally couldn't process it. Uh, I'm, I was very lucky that I, I had an older brother who knew a lot about music, and as a matter of fact, he's sitting right there. So uh, it's largely because of you that I'm up here right at this moment. Anyway, I, I was really not interested in composing an opera, but what drew me to the project was the fact that I'm a huge fan of the films of Mario Bava. Uh, as a child, I remember seeing many of these movies, and of course, I didn't know what a director was or, or you know, any of that. All I knew that, that there were some of these movies that I just simply couldn't look away from the screen, uh, no matter how terrifying or bizarre it was. It was just it just drew me into it. So years later, when I figured out that oh, these all have to do with this Italian filmmaker Mario Bava. Um, I became very interested in his work. So when I heard about this opportunity, I thought, well, I'd, I'd like to explore this. And I, I got the contact information for Opera Theatre Oregon and talked with them about it. And um, I was just lucky enough that of all the composers they were looking at to do this project, they ended up picking me to do it. Now, uh, I primarily do film and some television. Uh, the typical feature film, you know, ranges from about, at the low end, 85 minutes up to, on the average, 110 minutes, something like that. Uh, and nominally, I'd say it takes six to eight weeks to score a feature film. Now, this film uh, was going to be 74 minutes long, so I thought, well, this is a snap. I can probably crank this out in about five weeks. I was not correct about that. <laughs> Uh, it, it turned out to be by far 
the technically most difficult project I had ever done up to that point, and it is still the technically most difficult project I have ever done. Um, and let me explain why that is. The, the, the central, I hesitate to use the word gimmick, but we're all friends, let's call it a gimmick. The central gimmick is that the picture is projected on a screen and when the characters on the screen open their mouths to speak, uh, you will hear a singer actually sing their lines. Now, uh, you probably, you know, hear me say that and you think, well, you know, that, that's it's probably a little complicated to do that. You, you just can't even imagine how complicated that is. Um, and honestly, I didn't realize it until I got into the, the doing of the thing. Uh, and of course, once you're in the middle of it, it's too late to chicken out at that point. And I'm, well, I'm committed here. But it was enormously complicated because not only did you have the same issue that, that any film composer would face, namely having to, you know, spot the film, figure out, okay, for this particular scene, what is the music going to do? What's it going to accomplish? Uh, in addition to all of that, which is in itself certainly difficult enough, uh, you had to worry about, uh, okay, now I have to create a vocal line which will correspond not only to the, the, the story, it will have to convey in some way the, the meaning of, of the story. It also has to be singable. Um, yeah, now, the singability of a line is an enormously complex consideration that, frankly, I knew next to nothing about. However, I was a, because I am the luckiest guy that's ever lived, uh, one of my oldest friends uh, is the head opera coach at the Manhattan School of Music. He knows everything there is to know, both technically and artistically, about writing for the human voice, for the operatic voice. And uh, in the same way that, that my brother is here, my friend William Tracy is sitting right over there. Are you sufficiently embarrassed? Good, good. Uh, Bill and I have been friends since we were 17, so we, we go back a little ways. But anyway, so, you know, all of this is further complicated by the fact that, oh, by the way, it also has to synchronize with the image on the screen. This is where it really, really got hard because, uh, you know, you can only sort of get close with it. Um, when it premiered up in Portland, uh, you know, largely the, the reviews that we got were very positive, uh, though one critic made a, a comment that uh, I still am kind of tickled by. Uh, uh, he said that in regard to the synchronization of the vocal line with the images on the screen, he said that it ranged from a level of accuracy that was truly alarming to that of a bad 70s kung fu movie. <laughs> so, you know, he didn't have to throw in the bad part, you know. That I thought was a little cold, to tell you the truth. But he could have just said 70s kung fu movie. I, but I guess he thought that, you know, the, the details matter. So, um, so anyway, that, that was the central 
challenge of this thing was how do you even get it close? Uh, and that was uh, enormously difficult. To give you an idea of the technical level of complexity, um, say in a typical film for a, uh, a three-minute sequence um, that isn't you know, a big action sequence of something like that. Say it's something sort of atmospheric, music that's go gonna go under dialogue. You might have two or three, maybe four places in the scene where the picture kind of has to, where the music has to honor what's happening on the screen. Well, if you took that same scene and now you were trying to synchronize the vocal line with the, the mouth movements of the actor, you're looking at somewhere between 50 and 70 hit points, uh, which resulted in a, a whole lot of headaches for me. Um, and you know, you can look at that and you can say, well, if, you know, if I'm free to, to alter the tempo as much as I want, to alter the meter as much as I want, to use very complicated rhythmic structures, you, you know, you can kind of get it a lot closer, but the problem is when you do that, it becomes unsingable. Uh, certainly most opera singers who haven't had extensive training in, in the, the arcane art of, of singing, you know, very avant-garde music would look at something like that and they, they'd say, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't know what this is. I, I can't sing it, I'm not going to sing it. You know, and now you have another problem on your hands. So, so essentially what it boiled down to was finding ways that were technically straightforward enough that it was performable and that it would get the singers into the ballpark. And then you'll see this at the performance tonight. Um, each of the singers, they're lined up on the stage, they have a, a monitor in front of them. So as they're standing there uh, singing and they have their music in front of them, they can look down and they can see the monitor with the picture and that enables them to kind of fine tune what they're doing. And you know, it might only make a difference, make it say 5% more accurate, but maybe that, that 5% is what accounts for the difference between frighteningly accurate and bad 70s kung fu. Um, now, uh, it, I finally got to the end of the thing, and it's like, well, here's the score, here's, here's the music, and, and they said, great, well, let's do it. So it was produced in May of 2010, and uh, much to my surprise, it was very successful up there. Uh, they did five shows. Uh, by the end of the run, uh, the last two performances were completely sold out, so we had excellent word of mouth. After that was over, you know, uh, everybody in Oregon was uh, content to say, oh, well, that was great, uh, let's do another thing now. But, you know, after having put six months of unbelievable work into what I initially thought was going to be five weeks long, uh, I, I, I found the prospect of taking this and setting it on a shelf in my studio and letting it sit there for all of eternity to be completely unacceptable. So uh, at that point I thought there has got to be an opera company in Los Angeles that might have an interest in doing this. Um, now, because I tend to be a complete knucklehead about things like this, I thought, well, there's LA Opera, and uh, I'm sure they would love to do my opera. Now, fortunately, <laughs> I know you're laughing because that's the silliest thing you've ever heard in your life. And fortunately, 
um, I, I didn't ask anyone, do you think it would be a good idea for me to call LA Opera and ask them if they would like to produce my opera? Because you see, if I'd asked anybody that, without doubt, they would have told me, you are completely insane. They, they won't even talk to you. They'll, they'll, they'll get a, a, a restraining order against you if you do that. They actually wouldn't. They're really very nice people. But, you know, fortunately, I, I didn't ask anyone that. So what I did was I simply called LA Opera and I said, would you all be interested in producing my opera? And then I waited for the horribleness to happen because I'm used to the film industry. And, you know, that, that, that's like calling, uh, you know, George Lucas's office and saying, you know, uh, can I stop by this afternoon just for a chat, you know, and then badness happens. Uh, but instead of, you know, using a lot of bad language with me, which is what I expected, uh, they said, well, we would have to know more about it. So I said, well, great, I, I, I have lots, lots of things I can tell you all about my opera. And, and then what began at that point was a dialogue that went on for about a year and a half. And to this day, I still think they were just thinking, look, if we just keep stringing this guy out long enough, he'll simply, he'll simply give up, you know, he'll just go away. They didn't know who they were dealing with. Uh, and because I, I am neither a particularly intelligent or talented person, but I am two things. I'm disciplined and I'm unbelievably persistent. So uh, I figure I'm going to keep going until they tell me, you know, absolutely no, and then they start the flood of the bad language. That would be the point where I thought, well, maybe I should leave these people alone. But as luck would have it, the opposite happened, and at a certain point, they, they invited me to a meeting and, you know, asked some very pointed questions. And then uh, they said, you know what, let's do this. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't believe I heard you correctly. And they said, no, we, we love it, we want to do it. So I, I said, great, you know, and we agreed that, you know, we'd have a follow-on meeting. And then that was the end of the meeting, and, and I was walking towards the, the elevator with, with Josh Winograd, who's the senior artistic planner. And now you have to understand, I'm used to the movie business. And in the movie business, in a meeting, it does not matter at all what anyone says in the meeting. What matters is what happens after you leave the room. And you won't know that until some point after the meeting. Uh, so it, it doesn't matter you know, what people say in a meeting, what matters is afterwards. So we walk out of the room and I, I looked at Josh and I said, so did that go well? <laughs> and once again, I mean, he looked at me like I was insane and he said, well, we, we just agreed we want to produce your opera. I think that's pretty good. And I'm thinking, well, you say that, sure. <laughs> so, uh, but it turns out that in, in the opera business, things that they say in meetings actually mean things. So that was a new experience for me. Another new experience connected with this is that the position of the composer in the world of opera is completely different from the world that a film composer lives in. See, in the film business, the composer, and, and I imagine this probably extends 
on up to you know A-list people as well. You know, you're you're part of the team, and you're you're often just a very kind of small part of the team. Sometimes you get all the way down to the level of like kitchen help or you know a, a pack animal or something. At least that's that's the world I live in. You know, maybe maybe Hans Zimmer doesn't you know get asked to clean up the dishes or anything. But in the world of opera, the composer is a god. And everything, everything that you say, everything that you write, everything is considered to be absolutely unquestionable. And that was a very new experience for me. I, I almost didn't know how to take it. And you know, the first time that, uh, and this was recently, this was about three weeks ago at an event, that American Cinematheque hosted to kind of kick this off, um, somebody actually referred to me as maestro. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, didn't, um, I, I didn't really know what to make of that. I, honestly, I, I thought about a, a, an old episode of a, a Seinfeld where Elaine has a boyfriend who's a conductor of one sort or another who insists on everybody calling him maestro. And, and here somebody had done it without me pleading for them to do it. So I, I don't know. I, I don't, I look at that really as something which is really kind of uh, charming and gently amusing rather than something I'm ever going to get used to. Now, on the other hand, the experience of having your work produced by an organization like LA Opera, that is completely like smoking crack. So I, I, I don't know how I'm ever going to go be able to go back to this other world where, you know, I have to bust dishes and things. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's, it's troubling and, uh, okay, I have a few more minutes. But, you know, having had this experience ha has been wonderful beyond belief. It, about the last week and a half when we've really been in rehearsals, the experience has been like, like being given a present that is wrapped in many layers of wrapping paper. And every day I got to remove one layer of the wrapping. And every time I did, the present got better and better and better. And tonight we get to remove the final wrapping. And uh, I, I can truthfully tell you, having been here for the dress rehearsal last night, I, I really think that tonight is going to be just extraordinary. Uh, you know, the, the orchestra is so great, the young singers we have are spectacular beyond belief, and you know, it's like at the same time that I'm just, I, I'm just consuming this, I'm just trying to, to memorize every moment of this experience, since this may in fact be the, the absolute zenith of my career as a composer, I, I also look at, at this experience and I think, you know, it's, it's just a shame I'm not better than I am. I, you know, I, I, I wish that, I, I just, I feel like I, you know, I, I don't want to let people down. But I, I really was extremely thrilled, and, and I hope that tonight all of you will um, maybe not be as thrilled as, as I am, but hopefully you'll, you'll come away from this and say, well, you know, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. <laughs> So I, I have a few minutes here. I'm sorry, I do have to go shortly, but uh, I'd like to open it up to any questions that anybody might have. Yes? Uh, 
Well, you know, I, I, I could go off at, at a great length on that. Um, I, I would say that, you know, because the, the, the composer of an opera has absolute authority in everything uh, that is essentially uh, cannot be questioned, I had complete say in, okay, what is this music going to be like? What is the style of the music going to be? Um, whereas, you know, when you're scoring a film, the composer never has the final say. So I could say, uh, for example, if I was working on a film and meeting with the director, I could say, well, you know, I think it would be great to score this film in this particular fashion, in this style, and do it with these instruments and whatever. And the director might say, hmm, nah. <laughs> and, then, and, and then it's kind of like, oh, well, what I meant to say was we're gonna, you know. <laughs> So, um, so that's a problem. Now, but to answer, give you a more specific answer, I, I, can, I can give you this much. In this film, uh, roughly two-thirds of the film happens in the physical world, in this case, ancient Greece. And then about a third of it takes place in Hades. Uh, so I felt like one thing that had to be aesthetically true is that the music of the physical world had to be viscerally different from the music of Hades. Otherwise, I just, you know, I mean, if I was in the audience, it wouldn't make any sense to me. So my, uh, my uninhibited decision was that, well, I want to, because I want to avoid some of the cliches of doing this sort of thing, I want to score the, the music of the physical world kind of in sort of a, a vaguely French impressionist style. The music of Hades, on the other hand, the model that I was looking to for that was something along the lines of the, the sort of the mid to late 20th century avant-garde. You know, Penderecki, Ligeti, Luciano Berrio, you know, the, these kinds of composers. Um, though, you know, it's, it's funny, once again, getting back to the, what the critics said in, in Portland, uh, one critic mentioned the, the influence of Alban Berg. And I, I, I thought, well, I, I definitely love me some Alban Berg, but I didn't really see the influence there, but I just kind of went with it and said, yep, <laughs> Alban Berg. So uh, did that answer your question? Sure. Yes, sir. Well, what I had to do was I, I took the, I transcribed the dialogue from the film. Uh, and you know, when you talk about dialogue from a film, from a, uh, an Italian film from 1961, you know, there, there's no telling how many versions are out there in the world somewhere, but I, I took the one that I had. And then what I had to do is I had to figure out, okay, so um, you, you can't, unless you're gonna do 74 minutes of recitative, and trust me, nobody wants that, uh, you, you can't, sing as many words as you can speak. So I had to go through and say, uh, if it takes in this one scene, this character, 15 words to say a thing, I have to find a way to say it in four words or something like that. But it also had to in some way synchronize with the mouth movements. It had to carry largely the same meaning. 
And, and then it also, you had to look at the vocal phrase. And if you were gonna have the character hit a high note, it had to be not only on a place in, in the content of what he was saying that made some sort of dramatic sense, it had to be on a syllable that was singable. You know, if, if the phrase is gonna build to a climactic point, you know, the climactic note, the, the word shouldn't be, you know, the or something. <laughs> you know, I, 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 see, I didn't know that, but Bill told me that. He said, <laughs> he said, no, no, you, it, it, the top, you know, word in the phrase, it, it can't be the. It, it shouldn't be, you know, and. It, no conjunctions. So, very helpful. Yes, sir. Well, uh, uh, I'm sorry? Um, uh, excuse me, I, I have just time for this question. I, I'm sorry. If any of you have any other questions that you'd like me to answer, you can always contact me through my website, which is just patrickmorganelli.com. And I'll, I'll do the best I can to answer your questions. Um, we were planning on doing it at the Egyptian, which honestly I, I would have loved because I think the Egyptian is a wonderful thing, and I think American Cinematheque is a, is a terrific organization. Uh, but the problem was, when we, we looked at it and realized that I think the Egyptian seats 814 people. You know, LA Opera was looking at it saying, well, we're, we can sell that many seats in about the first minute and a half that the, the thing goes on sale. So they called me down here for a meeting, and uh, we were talking, they said, well, look, here's the deal. Uh, we wanna go a little bigger with this, so a couple of things. Uh, we're gonna add a fourth performance instead of just three. We wanna move it to next year so we can get a little more publicity on it. Oh, and also, uh, we're gonna move it to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I, I, it takes a lot to leave me dumbstruck. But I remember after they, they said that, I just kind of sat there, and the only thing, uh, thing that I could think of to say was, words cannot adequately express the extent to which that blows my mind. <laughs> it still does. This moment when we're minutes away from this thing, it still feels like it's something happening to somebody else. So, uh, I don't know. I, like I said, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy that ever lived. So, I'm sorry I can't take any more questions because I kind of have to go do the thing. Thank you. I hope you enjoy the show, and if anyone has any other questions, like I said, you're free to contact me through my website. Thank you.